squad at the time of the shooting. A man has been arrested and charged after court documents show he attempted to kidnap a one-year-old boy outside of Minute Maid Park. 32-year-old Devin Neal has since been charged with attempted kidnapping. On Saturday, just outside of Minute Maid Park, Neal grabbed and pulled a wagon that the boy was sitting in, then grabbed the one-year-old boy and tried to remove him from the wagon. The man is currently being held in jail on a $125,000 bond. The city of Houston issued an apology on Tuesday about incorrect water bills. Over the last several weeks, the Houston Public Works Department has installed new electronic meters, and some accounts were incorrectly estimated. The city has said bills will be based on actual readings moving forward. Customers don't need to do anything and should be notified within five business days when things are cleared up. Locally heavy rainfall around the Houston area is expected to taper off later today, with mild temperatures continuing through tomorrow. Call 713-526-5738 and select option 1 now to donate to KPFT's May Pledge Drive or go online to kpft.org and become a member today. The success of this fund drive and the future of this radio station depends on listeners like you. 90.1 KPFT Houston. Looking out a dirty Below the cars in the city go rushing by I sit here alone and I wonder why Friday night and everyone I can feel the heat but it's soothing I always like waiting for that chorus though where the kids in America I mean, that's no, the big maybe thing. Maybe you can uh, karaoke. <laughs> we're the for kids us. in America. Welcome, welcome to growing up in America. And here it comes. Here it comes, Claire. Oh, he needs it. All right. Welcome to Growing Up in America here on KPFT, Pacifica Radio. Uh, in the room with me is uh, Claire. Claire, you doing okay? I am, I am. This song, always, I feel like my mic is off. This song always takes me back. I used to play it on a CD player with the big headphones in my backyard. Oh, you did? Yeah. <laughs> I have like vivid memories. But I'm good. Claire Dutre, Bob Sanborn here from uh, Children at Risk, hosting Growing Up in America. Uh, the next hour should be fun. We're going to be interviewing a number of experts on child policy and children's issues uh, as we really get into it. Uh we have our regular thumbs up, thumbs down segment, and our data of the day. Nadia Valiani is with us uh, to do our data of the day. The number today, sixty percent. Sixty percent. That could be I a lot of things. I did not cheat and look at the email yeah, that said what it is either. I didn't either, so I'm excited about it. So um, I wanted to start us off though. We had the food rankings. We did press conference yesterday, and so this is where we do every year. We look at how our school districts across the state doing when it comes to using the money available to them to feed food insecure children uh, in our state. And uh, Houston ISD was number two of the big school districts. Number two. Aldine, number one. So right here in Houston, which was pretty good. Overall, the number one school district across the state was Clint ISD, which is out in uh, uh, the El Paso area. And then Judson ISD in the San Antonio area was the best middle district, middle income uh, district. So uh, sort of interesting, right? When we look at percentages of kids uh, that are eligible for school breakfast that are getting it, Uh, And I think the number one was Los Fresnos down in the Rio Grande Valley. 80% of the kids eligible for free breakfast were getting it, which is a really nice thing. The worst school breakfast, Yes Prep here in Houston, uh, only 17% of the kids eligible were getting breakfast. So uh, sort of an interesting thing, Claire. And and now you've been in the school. Kids... Kids can't work and and succeed unless they're fed. Yeah, something Dr. Goffney said, or all of what she said in the press conference resonated. But I remember she spoke on hungry kids don't learn. And if they're hungry, everything else is second priority, which is true. So a lot of my students, if they had empty stomachs, they, that their focus was gone. So just ensuring that they have anything um, available. And then the after-school meals, I know Aldine ISD is also great about doing that, providing dinners for kids when they can. So it's really important. Yeah, yeah. I love this idea, though, that we sort of call out districts that are doing a really good job in making sure that kids get fed. And, you know, Miss Betty Wiggins from the director of nutrition from HISD, awesome. you know, it's like her passion is, right, making sure that hungry kids get fed. And, and I feel like 
those nutrition directors around the state that are doing the extra, like Miss Miss Betty and so many others, uh, they're they're not heralded enough, right? I mean, yeah. this is a a big. Uh, uh, this is a big importance on the front lines of fighting hunger. Yeah, and she's also big in nutrition. She She's very passionate about the kids fed, but also I know the farm that they're expanding in HISD yeah. and making sure children understand what's on their plate. So, yeah. yeah, they're great. So, I'm glad we were able to talk a little bit about that. That was a good press conference, a lot of coverage. Uh, we enjoyed doing that. So on the show today, also Dr. Daphne Hernandez is going to be with us. Uh, she's up next. Uh, she's the associate professor uh, at the Sizzik School of nursing at UT Health here in Houston. Uh, we're also going to be talking with Kira Calderon, who is a uh, uh, mental health specialist with the Harris Dep- Department of Education, talking about social-emotional learning in the early years. Uh, Reka Lakshmanan, who we love from Immunize USA, will be here talking about legislation and uh, the state legislature. And then Sherelle Webb talking about coding for kids, which I think uh, should be good. Uh, and uh, Pretty good. And, and yeah. Daphne's going to be talking a bit about economic disruptions that are occurring, contributing to food insecurity, which we've been mentioning. So, yeah. uh, But I want to start with a little bit of a thumbs up, thumbs down, right? So that's pretty good. Pretty good little music. Thumbs up, thumbs down. And I do want to mention it's Pledge Week, by the way. So we want you to give us a call, 713-526-5738, 713-526-5738, to pledge here for Growing Up in America, to pledge to KPFT, uh, really the greatest community radio station of all time, Claire. It is. It was voted by myself just now. (laughs) Claire and Dr. Bob (laughs) voted, and we said greatest of all time. But you can be part of this. Uh, As many of you know, the Growing Up in America radio show is uh, very unique, right? There's nothing like us anywhere in the country where we focus on children's policy, family policy, and we do it in in a way that's uh, super accessible to everybody. Uh, And you have a group of activists that, that call in, a group of activists that we get on the program focusing on these key issues. Uh, and that's what we do here at KPFT and what we do at Growing Up in America. And we want your support. We need your support. 713-526-5738. Give us your credit card. Do a monthly donation. You know, we're doing this thing here at KPFT where you get, for a monthly donation, you get uh, a brick out front on the sidewalk. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. So that neat. sounds pretty cool, right? Yeah. So we could have it, you know, Claire Dutre, you know. Radio superstar. Radio superstar right out there. Uh, for a special, I think it's only $50 a month, right, is all you need to uh, for you, you to get outside. that. So, yeah, so very good. Cool. And I know we've had a few people call in, and Becky, or Becky's taking care of the, some of those phone calls, and uh, we hope that you will call in 713-526-5738. And is it uh, option one, Rico? Is that what we do for? Uh, option uh, two. Option two is for donating? Okay, very good. Press two to donate, 713-526-5738. All right, so uh, the thumbs up, thumbs down today, Claire. Gap year. What? Gap year. Gap year. Specifically between high school and college. Yeah. What do you think about that? Did you do a gap, gap year? year between high school and I college? I did not. I was very much, this sounds off, I was very much in the pipeline of you go straight to college from high school, college readiness is just zoned in. Your senior year is college yeah. prep. Um, but I think it's interesting. I, it can help. It definitely could have helped me resettle. I think I would have benefited more in between college and life. A lot of my peers did have that yeah. option with COVID. Yeah. There was yeah. no choice but to gap year. Um, but, but it is, I don't know. I think it's a good idea for students if they need more time to transition, more time to consider because um, don't be forced into going into an academic program and then drop out because you didn't have that time to really perceive what you were interested in. You know, as a as a kid coming from a low income family, I felt like I had a choice between going to college or like starting my work career. You know, like yeah. it's going to college or are you going to work for the rest of your life? And so there's a part of me that thinks of gap year as like a little bit. Work. It's it's a little bit uh, what's the word uh, that I'm privileged. It's a little yeah. bit privileged, right? Well, it depends. But, no, no, but yeah. but I'll but I'll add this is that uh, 
just because you enter the workforce doesn't mean you're there forever. And how many kids do we know that worked a little bit and then went to college and they're so much more successful because they sort of have their stuff together, right? Well, yeah. And also post-grad, a lot of companies want the experience. So it's hard, especially, I know some students, I had to work through college, but if you don't have that time or capacity to really get work experience, that gap year could help build skills. I will say for college to grad school, uh, I would have a gap life because it's very hard for me to consider transitioning back into a college student mindset Yeah. after being in the workforce so long, um, seeing value in, I don't know, doing another year and yeah. just stopping work. Yeah, I think you see more and more people that just sort of grad school is while you're working, right, is, yeah. is what's going on. So, but, but, but I feel like there are a lot of kids – uh, privileged or not, that do extraordinary things during the gap year. And, yeah. I've, you know, for me, after college, I joined uh, the Peace Corps. So I was oh, part I of the Peace Corps. And while that was after college, uh, you know, it's it was very defining for me. And I feel like for kids uh, to have some sort of experience that's defining, I'm, I'm not sure it's a gap year to – uh, get out of high school and work fast food or to get out of high school and, yeah. you know, to do construction work. Uh, but I can also see that as being defining, you know, I don't want to eliminate anything, but, right. uh, but I also feel like for a lot of kids, uh, sort of getting, getting on the wheel pretty quickly, like, what am I doing next is sort of what we, we feel like life is short at that point, right? Life yeah. is short. So. It, it's an interesting, I might, it just depends. I think maybe senior year have more reflection, I am thumbs up, like you said, between college and deciding what's next. Yeah. A year, I mean, obviously, we don't have the privilege of traveling the world, but a year of putting yourself out of your comfort zone because you might not know what exactly you want to get into, or you might, um, but it can be beneficial. I am thumbs up. Thumbs up gap for year. gap year. Yeah. I think if you could afford something great, mm-hmm. thumbs up. If you can't, get on to college. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> Very good. All right, we're ready for our next little segment. All right, uh, with us on the phone is uh, Dr. Daphne Hernandez. She's the associate professor within the Department of Research at the Sizzik School of Nursing at UT Health Houston. Daphne, how you been doing? I'm good. I'm good. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for being here with us. So I know you want to talk a lot about some of the economic disruptions that are occurring uh, right now and the contribution to food insecurity, housing instability. Talk a little bit about that and what you're finding, Daphne, and and some of the work you're doing. Yeah. So during, during the height of the pandemic, we had a lot of programs out there. We had rental assistance, eviction moratoriums food assistant programs that were expanded. All these programs were very helpful in mm-hmm. helping individuals stay in their homes, getting food on the table. And, you know, the research that's coming out now is that these programs did help decrease the spread of COVID because individuals weren't overcrowding in people's houses. They were allowed they were allowed to stay in their homes. Mm-hmm. Um, but overall the pandemic did intensify the structural drivers of economic disparities. So while people weren't being evicted from their homes, they did still um, they did still have rental debt yeah. accumulating, you know. And so, and and individuals were able to get food during this time, but it doesn't mean that they were food secure. And so now, what's happening is that these pandemic era policies are sunsetting at a time where there's inflation. Mm. So we have an increased cost of food by 9%, an increased cost of shelter by 8%, and an increase in transportation by 13%. So this is causing a lot of economic disruption among the most vulnerable, which then places them at greater risk for economic uncertainty going forward. Yeah, can you just... I know you're talking about these pandemic supports sunsetting, and I, I don't think it's really exemplified enough on how um, these issues are persisting past the pandemic and even blowing up. But can you give some insight on what those issues look like from pandemic or pre-pandemic to now? 
So, um, so pre-pandemic, you know, individuals that are having economic uncertainty now, we're having economic uncertainty before. So individuals that couldn't pay their rent or had difficulties paying their rent, had difficulties um, putting food on the table before COVID um, are, are having those same difficulties now, but probably maybe at a higher, higher um, extreme because of just the inflation, the cost of, of, of basic needs went up. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people were dependent on the expansion of food assistance programs to make those ends meet, and meet. And now we don't we don't have those programs around. And so, um, not only are they finding it difficult to make ends meet now, but it might be even more difficult than pre-pandemic, um, just because the the cost of general items. Um, bread, milk, uh, you know, so that all that went up. So it's even more difficult right now. Dr. Hernandez, tell us a little bit, what is the juxtaposition of this with where we see, you know, the unemployment rate at, you know, decades long lows, uh, you know, people seem to be finding work when they need it. I think a lot of people think like if there's plenty of employment, how, how does this poverty persist? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, poverty persists because whenever there's a depletion in household resources, it's gonna it's gonna put you at greater risk for food insecurity and housing instability. So any sort of setback doesn't allow individuals that are experiencing poverty to move forward. So while we had policies during the height of the pandemic to stabilize things, this really didn't help individuals in terms of getting out of poverty, right? These these were anti-poverty, supposedly anti-poverty policies, but it's not an anti-poverty policy in, in terms of getting you out of poverty. So, um, you know, low-income um, low uh, jobs with low wages help you sustain but does not help you get out of poverty. Yeah. And uh, and so that's the difficulty here, that individuals that are in poverty are experiencing um, just not greater economic hardship. But, you know, a third factor, was, which is mental health, because anytime there is, um, you know, um, the risk of unemployment or housing instability or the lack of money for basic needs, it, it puts individuals at risk for experiencing mental health problems. And so it's just causing this economic disruption is, is causing individuals more difficulty in getting out of poverty and then experiencing poor mental health. You know, we talk a lot about policy on the program and it, it does seem to me, and I, and I know Dr. Hernandez that uh, you've traveled a fair amount. And, and, you know, when I go to Europe, as an example, you you see practically practically no poverty in comparison to the United States, right? It seems like they've solved some of these problems, yet you bring up some of the policies that work in other countries, and immediately the default sort of argument by a lot of people is, well, that's socialism. Do you want to be like Venezuela? <laughs> and, you know, it's like, no, but I wouldn't mind being like Sweden or, you know, Germany or the Netherlands, because what you see is this level of anti-poverty policies that seemingly are working much better than in the United States. How do you address that when you hear things like that, Daphne? Uh, well, as you know, I do love to travel, and, and a, a lot of those countries I've, I've been to. And one of the things that, you know, I think we have to change our mindset here is that as a country, we're not going to move forward if we do, you know, we're as good as our weakest individual. Mm -hmm. And so we, that mindset of socialist has, has to change. Um, and, you know, what I would love to see is, in terms of policies, is that we stop addressing um, social issues in isolation and stop creating policies, isolated policies. So mm -hmm. thinking about creating more holistic policies where there is um, policies to address food insecurity, but also if you're, if you're eligible for SNAP, then you're eligible for a program that, uh, that assists with yeah. utilities. So, so 
such as the Low Income Home Energy Assistance Program. And, and that that's sort of low-hanging helps. fruit right there, just the idea yes. that if you sign up for one benefit, if you're eligible for all of them, why do you have to sign up for Why don't yeah. you just automatically become eligible? We make it very difficult for people to be successful, don't we? We we do. We do. And, and, and what I'm suggesting is, like you said, low-hanging fruit. This is not rocket science. It's already out there. I'm not... I'm not re- suggesting that we create a whole new program. We have these programs. Let's let's work with them together holistically um, to help. You know, again, I just don't think as a society we're any much better by leaving people behind. We, yeah. you know, we, we bring everybody together. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll finish with one of my favorite stories and Claire, please stop me if I've said this on the air before, <laughs> but, but one of my favorite, you know, we have some relatives who are from Sweden. So we've been to Sweden many times and, and I've, you know, gone into the quote unquote bad neighborhoods of Sweden, which are not very bad. Right. And, and they, they were at my house one time and they were trying to get a program on the TV. And I said, well, you just talk to the remote control and it'll tell you what to do. And they started laughing and I said, Oh no, no, really this remote control works. You see in the United States, uh, we have solved the problem of uh, these voice-controlled remote controls. You guys may have solved poverty, but we have the <laughs> voice the control down. <laughs> so uh, anyway, but it, it's interesting, right, to go to these countries and and you see the health system and the safety nets, you know, that are working so much better than ours, and yet we we refuse to take advice from other countries on what they're doing yeah. uh, and how to do it. Anyway, uh, Doctor Daphne Hernandez yeah. is. Uh, at the Sizzik School of Nursing at UT Health. Hey, Daphne, thanks so much for being on the program. I look forward to your next visit. Me too. Thank you. All right, take care. Well, thanks for being part of Growing Up in America. All right, next up here on the Growing Up in America program, it's Pledge Week. We want to make sure that you understand that you need to give us a call, 713-526-5738. Becca, Becky, are we getting any phone calls? People donate. We got some people donating. All right, yes, 713-526-5738. Give a little bit of money to KPFT, Pacifica Radio, Growing Up in America. Have you given yet, Claire, by the way? I know you give. I, have, you I, give, I give and, and give, give and give my time every week, yeah, but I'll, yeah. I'll open the wallet soon. Very good. Hey, on the line with us is Kiro uh, Calderon, who is a mental health. And Kiro, you're going to have to help me with this because I don't know whether you pronounce it Calderon or Calderon, uh, mental health specialist at Harris County Department of Education. Kiro, how are you doing? I'm good, sir. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Is it Calderon or Calderon? Um, it's Calderon. You said oh, it right. Calderon. Thank you. Okay, very good. <laughs> so um, I know we're talking about early education and social-emotional learning. Talk a little bit about uh, the work that you're doing on that and that importance of uh, social-emotional learning. Of course. Thank you. Um, you know, um, I am a mental specialist here for Harris County Department of Ed, primarily working for our Head Start division. We currently serve about, you know, as little as six months to as old as our uh, oldest is about five years old. And part of our mission is to really make sure that we embedded social emotional learning within our curriculum, but also knowing how to mold them into their own self advocates. Mm. Currently, we are using a curriculum called Skill Streaming, where we really want to highlight social emotional learning within our kids. And the really important part of that one is, of course, to having that social awareness, really understanding others and showing empathy, but also long-term effects of that, just knowing really how to build safe and healthy relationships with others as well, knowing how to deal with conflict, but also knowing how to self-manage their own emotions. Yeah, that's important, I think, should be trickled into all programs. Can you paint a picture of what that looks like in those early years? Of course. So part of our instruction is we do a lot of modeling. Children really learn from observation from adults or their caregivers as well, but also letting them practice within their peers. We believe that every communication or even every minute within our instruction time serves as a time for learning. So if there is a conflict or if there is a time for us to just really pitch in a 
social emotional lesson, whether whether that may be just the concept of sharing or listening in some in some capacity, then that's where we always try to model, really walk them through what it really means. And part of my consultation with teachers is, is that you know when we say some type of you know be nice to children, well. We need to be mindful how they don't know what that looks like, right? So we have to keep modeling it instead of actually just verbalizing what we need. And I know you work with Head Start, but as a mental health specialist in the Department of Ed, how do you see this trickling up into our K-12 space? Yes, um, before actually working for ACD and Head Start, I was actually a K-12 school counselor from elementary to high school. Mm-hmm. So that is still something that we are still pushing into. You know, we want to look at funding in some way as well, but I really appreciate the fact that a lot of school districts are really investing in and then with within social emotional learning. Then again, too, this is something that is something that constantly um, children or even students are constantly building up. When you look at it developmentally, the Children go through different stages, and with different stage, you have to triage that in a different approach. Right. One of the things I wanted to ask you, Kiro, is about, you know, I often talk about the importance of early education in terms of academic success. And as a state, we're starting to understand, right, this, the importance of uh, high-quality early education and its contribution to academic success, especially for low-income kids. Talk a little bit about social and emotional learning with low-income kids and the prospect of success because of that uh, social emotional learning at the early in the early years. Yes. Well, all, at the same time, too, we want to make sure that children are forming positive relationships, right? The first step is just building rapport in the beginning. And when we work with, you know, undeserved populations, it all, it all comes back to parent partnerships as well. Our educators have certain responsibilities, but also um, parents also have a responsibility in just knowing how to meet in a neutral solution together and part of Head Start and and also at ACDE is just knowing how to build community partnerships, collaborating with with mental health or even educational institutions to really make sure that our parents are supported and our students are supported as they transition out of our program. Wow, very good. Kira Calderon is with uh, the Harris County Department of Education. Uh, Kira, thanks for all the great work that you and your team are doing and thanks for being on the Growing Up in America program. No, thank you so much for your time. And, you know, at the same time, too, um, not we're not only just looking for people to hire as teachers. We're looking for great, caring, and empathetic teachers as well. You know, they can de- definitely give us a call at 713-672-9343, or they can just go through our org website for that one. But thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Carol, very much. Take care. That's some great music right there. It is. It is. Sorry, I just got so (laughs) distracted today. Um, But we are excited to move to the data of the day. Hey, hey, I want to thank a couple people, though, that gave. uh, Oh, yes, of course. Chris and Connie from Sugarland. Uh, We want to thank you for that uh, nice gift. Thank you for your donation. Yeah, very good. And I think uh, Becky Cantania is also doing a nice little donation. So uh, we're excited about that. And so keep the calls coming in. 713-526-5738. Do option. It's option two. Is that right, guys? Option two. And uh, that way you can give a little bit of money. How many, uh, three people so far, guys, have been giving? Or is it just the two, Becky and... uh, No, I thought I saw a third. Was I mistaken? I'm I'm hearing from... uh, Yeah. Oh, no, no. They just scrolled too quick on me. We, we, But we need a third, Claire. We I mean, need a third. Every thing good things do. are in threes. There Every you good go. thing So we need threes. a third and probably a fourth and a fifth would be yeah, pro- really, And a sixth and a seventh that would be, would be nice. That would be really good. So if we could do that. Number of the day, 60% on the phone with us is uh, uh, Nadia. 
and Nadia Valiani, and she's the Director of Community Philanthropy with the Greater Houston Community Foundation. One of our favorite groups, right? I mean, we know Fantastic. a number of people over there. Diana Sarsuelo is one of our faves, right? Steve over there, is, we like him. So hey, anyway, Steve. Nadia, how are you doing today? Hi, good afternoon. I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Very good. And thank you for doing our date of the day segment today. Uh, 60%, help us with that, Nadia. What is it? 60% is what? Yeah, 60% is the percentage of people who gave birth in Harris County in 2020 that received early prenatal care, which is care within the first trimester. So that strikes me as a pretty good but not good enough number. Is that about right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, it's it's a fine number. It, it's definitely not a great number. And what we've actually seen is that in the, for Bend County, the percentage of women who access prenatal care actually declined by ten percentage points in in the last year from twenty nineteen to twenty twenty. Why is that? Because of the pandemic? Do you feel? We've asked around. We've asked Fort Bend County um, Health and Human Services. We've asked several other people, and nobody seems to know exactly what caused it. So we can only assume that that was COVID-related and and getting access to health care during that time was difficult. Now, you would think that uh, a place like Fort Bend, if they're at 60%, would be higher than Harris County at 60% as well, just because there's a little bit higher wealth, you know, in Fort Bend. But what is the driver then in terms of how do we get those numbers, those numbers higher in a place like Houston and Harris County? You're absolutely right. I mean, just in 2019, the it was about 70% of women were getting early prenatal care, and then in 2020, it fell. What we found through our analysis on the Understanding Houston website is that the number one reason why women delay um, prenatal care is lack of health insurance. Mm. Wow. Seems like the root cause of a lot. And, the, and, the, and we have Harris County, right? It's the lowest percentage of health insurance in the nation. And uh, uh, yes. This is something I've, I've said recently. So that if we're lowest in the nation, that means in the developing world, we have lower health insurance. Uh, Houston has the lowest level yeah. of health insurance in the developing world of any city. And uh, what do we need to do outside of maybe providing more people with insurance, which is important? Are there other things that we might be able to do, Nadia? Yeah, I think, um, well, one thing we've learned is that while Medicaid does cover women who are pregnant, it takes some time for them to first learn that they're pregnant, apply for that coverage, wait to be approved. Um, so as long as I think if we're able to sort of streamline that timeline, that would definitely be ideal. I believe also right now Medicaid covers women about six months after they deliver. Ideally, one month is really important because we've seen um, maternal mortality rates between that six-month and one-month period um, increase as well. Um, so we definitely just need more health care earlier and, and for longer. Wow, very good. Yeah. And do you see these numbers past the first trimester stay pretty consistent, or do they have a smaller peak in access to care? Oh, that's a really good question. I actually don't have the data on that, um, but we do know that about one in 20 women actually don't receive any prenatal care at okay. all. So um, that's still about 5%. It's significant. Yeah, huge. So much more that we could be doing, Nadia. I mean, it's sort of ridiculous in a way, right, that we see some of these pieces of data and we're just uh, uh, we're just shocked, right, that there's just so much that could be happening uh, not only in Harris County and Fort Bend, but across the state of Texas in regards to taking care of some of our families, our moms, uh, our mm -hmm. children. Absolutely. And I think it's really hard for us in Houston to sort of reconcile that. We have the largest medical center right here in our backyard. So we see that there are options for care. But then when it comes down to access, it's like very few people in our region are able to. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Nadia Valiani is... Uh, um, uh, our data analyst for the day. And uh, she is with uh, the Greater Houston Community Foundation. She's the director of community philanthropy out there. Nadia, thank you very much for being on the Growing Up in America program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Very good. You're listening to Growing Up in America, KPFT, Pacifica Radio. So, Claire, why is it that that's my favorite song in the whole show? 
Well, because just, you chose that song. <laughs> it's exactly why it's your favorite. Yeah, it's like, uh, I love that song, though. So anyway. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah. I think you're being kind to me. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's Pledge Week here. Uh, it's, I think it's Pledge Weeks here on KPFT. It's always a Pledge Week. And so we want you to give a call, 713-526-5738. Press option, 1. Option 1. They're it is telling not me now, Option they've, 2. They've been telling me Option 2. And I always thought it was Option 1. I'm like, okay, if you're saying it's Option 2, 726 Five seven three eight. Thank you, Rico, for misdirecting me all those times. I know. You're so, firing the uh, intern. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, give us a call and give us a. Do- it didn't stop people from donating. Interestingly, though, it which was not. really good. They they are they are determined. They just said, "Hey, could you please tell people it's option one?" <laughs> so, not to. Uh, also want to thank uh, thank Al who called in on behalf of Border Radio. He just gave a donation. Thank you, Al, for. Uh, your fine donation and uh, uh, Becky, did we get that big donation that you were sending in? So yeah, okay, thank you very much for that. So uh, we're we're going to town here. I think we've surpassed our goal, but the goal is never high the goal enough. Keeps growing. It keeps every time we pass it. <laughs> Just as our great you know, guests we, keep growing. We hear Sandy saying, "Hey, no, we could do we could do more." Yeah, so that's so that's good. Uh, uh, Reka Lakshm- Lakshmanan, who is with uh, Immunize USA, is with us. Reka has been spending a lot of time, for better or for worse, in Austin uh, at this legislative session. Reka, I know we're coming closer to an end, but uh, what are you thinking of this legislative session, especially as it relates to immunizations, Reka? Um, well, good afternoon. Yes. Um, I'll just say it's been a roller coaster, yeah. and we're, we're right at the tail end of it. We've got, what, about almost three weeks left, and um, in fact, today was a pretty big day um, in a not so good way in terms of immunizations. Mm. There were um, a couple of bills um, that were heard in committee. And so, you know, we're just hoping to, you know, get people to speak up and make sure that, you know, we don't see these um, bills that can set back, you know, public health policies and, um, you know, bring back diseases like measles and polio really kind of keep them at bay and make sure that they don't cross the finish line, which is what we're aiming for this session. So, Reka, is it turning out to be? I mean, I know you and I going into this session, right? We we had some, uh, you know, we were we thought it was going to be, yeah, we had some worry, right? We thought it was going to be horrible. Uh, has it turned out better than we thought? Um, you know, from our count, you know, there have been over fifty anti-vaccine bills filed. Um, a very small handful of those bills have actually gotten hearings. But, you know, I would say, you know, we expected it to be a bad session. Um, it was prophetic. Um, it has been a bad session. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one of the one of the pieces of legislation that we're still watching closely because, you know, things don't end until the gavel hits on right. May 31st. Right. And, you know, there's one piece of legislation that passed out of the Senate. Um, it's Senate Bill 1024. And, you know, that's the one that we're really, really worried about because it, you know, shifts who can make uh, decisions related to, you know, school vaccine requirements. Um, It, you know, handcuffs the health department in terms of promoting good public health policies, like making recommendations for vaccines that children and adults should get. And so, you know, our goal is to make sure that that, you know, bill doesn't really get a hearing. But, you know, if we can if we can make it through, I would say the next week, week and a half without you know any additional hearings, then I think you know a little bit of the fog will be lifted. But again, until we get through the thirty first, um, you know anything can happen, and this is the time when shenanigans do happen. Yeah. You know, quietly um, on the floor or you know at midnight or one o'clock in the morning. Yeah, and even on top of the 50 immunization or anti-immunization bills filed or try to be filed, there's there's an attack on public health in general in other facets and in other bills. Can you speak to maybe where that is in different buckets and how um, maybe some wins yeah. or more worries? Well, I mean, you know, I think for all, for us, you know, pro-advocates, you know, if, if these bills don't advance, then it's it, will end up being a very good session mm-hmm. for all of us. But, you know, in addition to the one I just mentioned, you know, the other one that we're watching, which um, was heard early this morning in, in the Senate Health and Human Services Committee, is effectively a bill that would punish Medicaid providers. So 
by revoking their Medicaid reimbursement. So you have Medicaid providers who are trying to take care of their patients, set good office you know, practices, making sure that newborns are protected against diseases that they cannot be vaccinated against because they're still too young. You know, effectively, this bill would say, well, if a Medicaid provider, you know, decides at some point during care that, you know, they can no longer, um, you know, see unvaccinated, you know, patients, mainly because it may not be a right fit for the family, may not be the right fit for the provider because they want to protect all their patients, then, you know, it may be time for that family to find another practitioner. Well, effectively, um, you know, this bill would make that illegal. Um, you know, providers, if, if they decide to dismiss families, then that Medicaid provider can lose their Medicaid, you know, funding and then be disenrolled in the program, which then, you know, we know we already have, you know, a healthcare provider shortage right. um, in this state. You know, we already know that, you know, access to care is a challenge. And it's a misnomer that, you know, we know that, you know, for the most part, um, you know, Medicaid families, you know, actually do better in terms of getting their children immunized. So that's something that's really worrisome and, and disturbing as well, because now it goes beyond, you know, um, what children and adults should get. And it really starts to impact access to care. Rekha, um, I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, I was, uh, I, and I probably shared this with you, I was talking to Peter Hotez, uh, the guy who works on vaccines, he gives his life to this, he and his team. And and his hope was that, oh, maybe because there's a pandemic, people might think, well, we need a vaccine, and that will mean that more people become understanding of the science that vaccines are good. But indeed, it's moved entirely the opposite direction. And, and in other words, I think we have more anti-vaccine people because of the pandemic, but also because of being at home and hearing all these conspiracy theories and believing what they read on the Internet instead of their science experts that we traditionally look to. I'm wondering, do you see this getting better or do you see this getting worse? You know, we're, we're coming out of the pandemic but vaccines, especially those vaccines, you know, measles mm -hmm. and polio that we've been using for years and years, uh, do do you still, I mean, obviously we need to keep the defense up, but is it going to continue to be a, sort of a, a troublesome area for us? Uh, I'm, I'm going to stay optimistic yeah. that, you know, yeah. that we're going to, that we'll, we'll get out of it and, and we'll kind of try to get ourselves back on track. But, you know, I'm also a pragmatist and a realist, which is, you know, Dr. Hotez is, you know, exactly right. And what you're saying, you know, Dr. Bob is exactly right, which is, you know, we've seen, you know, folks on the other side use the pandemic as an opportunity. And it really, you know, is incumbent on all of us who, you know, um, have seen, um, you know, the benefits of vaccinating against polio and measles, which means that, you know, we really don't see cases of those diseases, um, you know, anymore or as frequently to really kind of speak up and, and try to push back um, against the tide of, of misinformation and this opportunism. And so I think that's what we're trying to do at the Immunization Partnership is we know that, you know, most people, you know, support and, and understand the importance and the value of vaccines. And it's a matter of really kind of mobilizing and helping to educate and remind our neighbors that, you know, we don't have lines of people, you know, people standing in line to get a polio vaccine because we've seen polio outbreaks all across our communities and across the state. And that's because of vaccines. So doing those reminders are going to be incredibly important to be able to, you know, uh, stop the bleed and mitigate the bleed that we are seeing right now. Reka Lakshmanan is the uh, what? What's your? You're like the chief strategy officer, is that right, Reka? Chief strategy officer. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's a multi-syllable title, but you know, um, I I champion you know people's health, and we want to make sure that people people get vaccinated, so we don't see these diseases reemerge. Very good with the immunized I'm just USA. A messenger. <laughs> and you, and you know you're you're a heck of an advocate at the state legislative level. So Reka, thank you very much for the work that you and everyone on your team does each and every day. And thanks for being on the Growing Up in America program. 
Well, thanks so much, and big shout out to Children at Risk because you all do amazing work, and it's a it's a it's a great collaboration and partnership. So thank Absolutely. you as always. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Are big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas. The prairie sky is wide and high, deep in the heart of Texas. The coyotes. Were you singing a little bit there? You don't sing the Texas songs so much, Claire, right? No, I don't. I don't. You I like love the Louisiana, Louisiana songs. Like you like the Louisiana banjos songs. and. You know, I would. Prefer, you know, you know what we need to Becky, Becca. We need to have some Bad Bunny probably that we oh, need to put. Okay. Out. Don't you think that would be good to put? You know, I'm not going to trade. I'm not going to trade. Come together, but maybe we could trade uh, Deep in the Heart for Bad Bunny at least once. <laughs> yeah, I think he might produce the new anthem of Texas. <laughs> <laughs> so very good. Hey, uh, again, thank you to all those that are donating. Uh, 713-526-5738, 713-526-5738. Option one, if you want to give and we want to highlight Becky's donation came through, uh, which helped us reach our goal for the week, uh, just for the Growing Up in America program. And so uh, we still want you to give because there's this is a year-long deal for us at Growing Up in America and KPFT, uh, the community radio station, the greatest community radio station in the world. And so uh, we're excited that you're a part of it. Uh, we want to thank everyone who's been calling in. So uh, our uh, final guest for the for the day today is uh, Sherelle Webb. Uh, she's with the Coding with a Twist. And so we're excited to have Sherelle on the show. Sherelle, how you doing? I'm doing just fine. Thank you for having me. How are you? Doing super well. Claire and I were excited to have you on, Sherelle. Talk a little bit about what is coding with a twist, by the way. Oh, my goodness. I'm so glad you asked. Coding <laughs> with a twist was birthed while I was still a classroom educator. And coding with a twist is an organization we introduce the underestimated to the world of computer science, robotics. Oh coding in all things STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Wow. I love the idea, though, that the – what what did you call it? Coding for the under – Underestimated. Underestimated. The, yeah. That, yeah. Usually in conversation when you're talking about educators and they are wanting to bring – or people on the outside wanting to bring things into at-risk schools, they usually choose the language underrepresented – or ah. underserved. And so I like to introduce the, yeah. another under term, which is they're also underestimated. Wow, they're not that's just fantastic. I love under, that. Yeah, if, represent it. If, if I could remember that, I'm going to use that much more often, Sherelle. So I think yes, you. Like everyone should. <laughs> so, yes, thank you. Sherelle, tell me, though, uh, you know, we Claire and I specifically have had many discussions around STEM and how in in Texas and in the United States, it especially uh, doesn't start early enough in the classroom in terms of making it fun, right? It's always like, oh, yeah. math is next. Talk a little bit about how how does coding with a twist sort of help with that? You know, okay, so I want to first tell you how I got introduced to it and okay. how it just blew my mind. So as a classroom educator of 11 years, um, but I've been in education for about 16, mm. I am a professional development junkie. So I always sought out to uh, improve my experience so then I can take them back to the classroom. Well, upon visiting or attending a PD, which I was the client of coming to, mm-hmm. I can tell you about that. There was a PD called Introduction to Coding and Computational Thinking given by Rice University. Mm. It was given on a Saturday. I applied to attend. Well, I received an email that said, hey, Sherelle, um, unfortunately, you won't be able to come because we're full. I'm like, okay. Mm. So I got in my car. Drove out to Rice, paid for parking, went to where they were having the class because signage was all over the campus. And I saw three vacant spots that was unfulfilled. And one of the names, I personally knew the person. I called them up. She answered. And I asked her, hey, Nay, are you attending this PD you signed up for at Rice? She said, I didn't even know. I, I forgot I even had it. Go ahead and scratch my name out in a 10. Now, upon me sitting down, I was given the task of creating a game 
with like program a game with computer science. Well, it was Greek to me. I had no idea what they were asking me to do. So my lab partner, he was so patient with me. Mm. He said, Sherelle, we got this. Within like five minutes, we were creating like a check for understanding game um, on science, eighth grade science content. And I knew the eighth grade science content part, but how to create a check for understanding like machine learning almost, mm, mm-hmm. it threw me for a curve. Well, from that point on, I left there ripping up my lesson plan that I had for the next week, and I started integrating computational thinking with my eighth-grade science concept. Now, there's no science in computer science as mm-hmm. we know it in yeah. the state of Texas. And so I had to then merge it. And so one of the examples to answer your question, one of the examples on how I merged it was in A-Price Lines, we talk about acceleration, velocity, speed. So speed, velocity, and acceleration. Mm-hmm. Well, I then purchased what is called a Spiro. Spiros are a robotic ball that you can code through a maze or obstacle course or whatever well i bought this device and i taught my children my students my scholars how to program and calculate the speed velocity and acceleration of this robot and so that was me merging computer science with my eighth grade science concept yeah i I mean i love this so much i was a high school science teacher and Mm -hmm. um i ran our girls who code club so we had a small group but yeah no i loved it but it was cool because they don't like it is an opportunity to make it fun and i know i can't think of the website right now but there's learning games that use among us integrated and so as soon code.org or scratch right right so it's just so many opportunities and you see that final like aha moment of the kids um, just being able, because you always hear the, why does this matter? When am I going to use this? Mm-hmm. And so it's so much not when am I going to use this, but you're already using this and here's the pine. So I know you're a powerhouse and not only are you a fantastic <laughs> educator, but you also educate educators. Can you speak on um, that work? Oh, absolutely. So <laughs> many a time, many a times, you know, students will see or even adults hear um, people talking about science, but they don't get to do science. And mm-hmm. so I've always had the dream of being the teacher's teacher. So from that, of course, I'm a lifelong learner, attending those professional developments. So uh, not only do I get a rush by seeing the light bulb come on in scholars, but I also get an even bigger rush when I see new or even better teachers say, you know what? Oh, my goodness. I never saw it in that perspective. Almost like um, there was a new teacher who was um, teaching moon phases. Well, often they like to, you know, pull out the Oreos and scrape off the icing because it's a it's a cool edible lab. But then I would introduce, well, if you're looking at the moon phases going from um, right to left, the light is growing, right? So that it's waxing, but not just visually. Look at the percentage of light, right? Mm-hmm. So the first moon phase is the new moon, which is 0% of light. The next phase is waxing crescent, so that's 25% of light. Mm-hmm. As you are progressing in each phase, it's increasing by 25% of light. So even if you don't know the name of the phase, you know the percentage which will give you a better chance of getting the answer correct or yeah. identifying the phase. Wow. So I love being able to break down um, these science concepts to new teachers, veteran teachers, as well as scholars. So um, me being in the classroom and being the teacher's teacher is, oh, my goodness, that's definitely my jam. And um, I appreciate the them being coachable because wow. that's half the battle, right? We always say the adults are worse, you know, worse than the students are. But I appreciate new teachers just being coachable because that allows me 
come in and give them a different perspective. And so I enjoy it so much. Claire, I think Sherelle needs to come and be co-host at some point here because I she's, she's <laughs> well, pretty I lively. So I love this. I love this. Let's go to the final five uh, fun questions uh, with uh, Sherelle. Sherelle, when you were, where did you grow up, by the way, Sherelle? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Lufkin, Texas. Lufkin, right. okay. So growing up in Lufkin, what was the first mm-hmm. thing when you said, this is what I want to be when I grow up, what was the first thing you remember thinking you wanted to be when you grew up? Oh, a nurse. A nurse. A nurse, hands down. Very good. Mm-hmm. Very good. The second question, what was your favorite book to read or be read to as a child? Ooh, okay. So it definitely had to be um, The Miseducation of the Negro, honestly. Oh, oh wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And what was your favorite TV show growing up, Sherelle? My favorite TV show, um, Golden Girls. Golden girl. I don't know many children <laughs> sure. watching that. You know, Cheryl, you know this is like, this is like what, you know, and we grew up like with limited TV, so different than it is today, right? I mean, it's just uh, yeah. yeah. The uh, next one is in the movie of Cheryl Webb coming probably twenty twenty four. Who? What actress would you pick to play you? Oh, I'm H Town, so Beyonce. Yeah. Perfect. Of course, right? <laughs> That's the way to go. And then uh, growing up, Sherelle, this will be our last question. What was your favorite thing to eat growing up? Oh, my goodness. This is definitely going to expose the country girl in me, but beef, chips, and rice. Oh, Sherelle, that's so fantastic. And and you live in H-Town. Where's your favorite place to go eat right now, Sherelle? What's your favorite restaurant when you... My favorite place right now would probably be... I love Gracie's. Gracie's Mm. because they have that... The um like gumbo that's definitely like homemade. So I love going yeah. to Gracie. Oh yeah, very good, very it's good. On my list now. Sherelle Webb is with uh, with a twist, coding with a twist, and we're excited to have her. Thanks, Sherelle, very much for being on the Growing Up in America program. Thank you for having me. You guys have an incredible day. You, you too. too. Take care. You're listening to Growing Up in America on KPFT. Pacifica Radio. It is Pledge Week, and so in our final uh, two minutes here, uh, this is your chance. 713-526-5738, option one. 713-526-5738, option one. Maybe next week we could bring Dwayne Bradley on to do some little pitching for us. You know, I I can't think of anyone who pitches better than Dwayne Bradley, though he takes up a lot of time. Every card in the book to list for everyone. He he takes up a lot of space, though, right? I mean, that's the thing. I mean, we tend to, we probably pitch less than maybe your average show. Uh, But I think it's good to do a little pitching, get people to support KPFT. Uh, The work that's going on here and all facets of what KPFT is doing is extraordinary. We we need your support. And then the Growing Up in America program is very unique as well. And to have people like Claire, who uh, works on this host, produces, she produces. You know, we have uh, Becca in the back, Becca Hernandez, who's working uh, hard on this. Uh, Becky Quintanilla, who's working hard on this. We have a lot of people that... uh, uh, Lauren, yeah. who's in here, Lauren Beagle works on this program. So a lot of great people <coughs> people that work in uh, week in, week out to bring this on there. We want you to support us, 713-526-5738, 713-526-5738, option one. And uh, we have a good program coming up next week, Claire. We do. We have a good show that I would love to give a hint to if I could remember the show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's going to be great. We have our own Linda. I remember that. So we get to next week. We're going to talk a little bit about Title Title Forty Two, lifting mm-hmm. of Title Forty Two on the border. What does that mean for children uh, in the Houston area? Because Houston is going to be one of the cities most affected by the lifting of Title Forty Two. And I have to say, you know, I've never been a fan of Title Forty Two, and so I feel like we're getting back to normal. But getting back to normal is going to be painful yeah, at the border. What is normal? Yeah, it's yeah. it's a tough little deal. So we'll be talking a little bit more about that. You're listening to KPFT, and this is Growing Up in America. We do this each and every week for, for children. children. See you next time. I hopped up the plane at LAX with a dream, my cardigan. Welcome to the land of fame, access. Am I gonna fit in? Jumped in the cab, here I am for the first time Look to my right and I see the Hollywood sign This is all so crazy Everybody seems so famous My tummy's turning and I'm feeling kinda homesick Too much pressure and I'm nervous 
Come join us for the best in blues shows. It's Blues Sundays on KPFT. The sun comes up with the Blues Cats Lounge at 6. With Boyd Bluestein. At 8, it's Mrs. V's Blues. At 11, it's the Blues Brunch with Blues King Nuri Nuri. The Blues Hound takes over at 2. With Howling the Blues. To round up Blues Sundays, it's Clint Broussard with Blues and Hi-Fi. A great day of blues, Sundays here on KPFT. Sundays here on KPFT. People tell us they learn a lot from this station. A good reminder that learning can be fun.